In this episode, what the heck is a riser? And can you actually be better, faster, and safer? And guess who's building the coolest platforms offshore? gas has always challenged technology. Now it's time for tech to challenge back. Come hear how the best minds in the industry are making those solutions a reality on the Oil and Gas Technology Podcast with your host, Mark LaCour. Hey folks, we're back with another episode. Before we get to our guests, please, 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 if you want to do me a favor, and help support this show and all of our shows, just leave a review. It takes a couple of minutes. Go to iTunes. You know, Give me a five-star review, a one-star review. Let me know what you think. Let me know if there's anything we need to change. But this show is new. And the best thing that you can do to help me support the show and help grow the show is just go to iTunes leave me a quick review. And today, we're sitting here with uh, Stuart Maxwell with Aquaterra. All of our guest interviews are made possible by Flutur. Action is not insights. They're doing some amazing artificial intelligence stuff in oil and gas. Go check them out. Stuart, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like you're from West Texas. No, I'm from the West Coast, but uh, West Coast of Scotland. (laughs) Yeah, and so it's, what are you, six hours ahead? So it's in the afternoon in your time today. Yes, it's it's about half past three in the afternoon at the moment. So yeah, I think we're six to seven hours ahead, depending on whether it's winter or summertime. Yeah, it always throws me for a loop because Europe changes from daylight savings time like a week after we do. So for like one week of the entire year, you're actually seven hours ahead. And then the rest of the time, you're six hours ahead. It's like, really, we can agree on all these trade sanctions and everything else. We can't agree on when we change daylight savings time. Come on, politicians, get that fixed. So, Stuart, you work for a little company. I say little company. It's not a little company called Aquaterra. What does Aquaterra do? We are a supplier of sort of services and products to the oil and gas industry across the whole. We specialize in both riser products and sort of small minimum facilities platforms that basically enable operators to achieve first production sort of earlier and in a more cost-effective manner. Yeah, and if people don't know what a riser is, what is a riser? A riser is a it's a piece of pipe at its most simplistic level, but it's It's a conduit through which you perform drilling activities offshore or can actually produce the oil or gas or product finally to the the platform in the end. So it's almost like the connector, right, from the surface to the the subsea environment? Yes. I mean, it's it's the sort of drilling conduit or production conduit. So usually it consists of a pipe in 40 foot to 60 foot sections with a connection at each end that's sort of deployed and run from the jack-up or the semi-submersible, locked together, connected to the subsea wellhead or directly into the ground, and provides a pressure barrier and an environmental barrier. Yeah, it's a, so this is the tech show, so we're going to get really deep into this because all this stuff is really cool. It is amazing the stuff that companies like yours can do in a subsea environment where you have, you know, 3,000, 5,000, maybe maybe eight or 9,000 feet of water, you know, and, and, and y'all are operating fully operational. You said the, the, the risers are, are self-joining. Does that literally mean that the connectors work themselves when you connect links of riser? Usually, I mean, there's differences. So marine riser systems that are used from uh, semi-submersibles and drill ships in the sort of water depths you're talking about, they are typically, they're either a bayonet fitting or sometimes they're a dog fitting where you wind bits in. The riser systems we more commonly are involved with are in uh, shallower water depths, sort of jack-up environments. They are usually made of uh, either a threaded connection, so you screw them together, 
using the rig makeup equipment, or again, you can use a sort of dog type connection. The difference between the two is typically a, a semi submersible riser will be designed against sort of running deep water, sort of crushing loads, but the, the pressure inside the pipe in a lot of cases may be quite minimal. Whereas the riser systems we're working with can be operating up to sort of 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 PSI. That's crazy, 15,000 PSI. And you're starting to, so when you get in that subsea world, especially that, that deep water, which, which we all know has is, is been hurt by this low crude prices, but now you're starting to touch things like high pressure, high temperature. And that's a complete different world. That much water pressure at those temperatures. Like if I remember right, I think those temperatures get what to 350, 400 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, I can't do the Celsius calculation in my head, but that's some crazy engineering. So do y'all do this in-house? Do you literally have people sitting down looking at all the specs for these subsea installations and then doing the engineering work to actually design these risers? For the risers, uh, again, I'll probably focus in more that the, the risers we're typically involved with are more the, the jack-up risers, but again, they are HPHT risers for exactly those sort of temperatures and pressures you mentioned. And and yes, we, we have a team, we look at the riser system from start to finish. So we have, we have a fleet of risers in our yard that we offer on a sort of rental basis, and that covers, you know, a large percentage of clients' needs. But when you start reaching those extremes, you might be touching on a new build system or a specific system. And yeah, then you're, you're looking at everything from the metallurgy of the pipe, the connection that's using, the heat treatment. Can you weld? Can't you weld? Exotics, corrosions. You know, there's, a, there's a whole raft of issues that you have to consider. It's not just a case of as the pressure goes up, you just get thicker and thicker and thicker pipe because then ultimately it just becomes too heavy to handle. Yeah, and so let's like kind of back away from that ultra deep water because that world hasn't come back yet. Let's stay maybe in the shallow water, which sounds like y'all's y'all's wheelhouse. But but even the shallow water, when you were doing jack up type of work, these risers have to be. And correct me if I'm wrong. These risers have to be taken apart, shipped across the world somewhere, put back together, probably on the deck of some crew boat somewhere, and then dropped in the ocean. And it has to work with zero defects. Like it, it can't fail, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, a failure. In this situation, we'd either mean a sort of catastrophic release of contents, you know, environmental pollution or, or, or uh, worst case, you know, loss of life. So they are, they're shipped in usually 40 foot sections. You'll have a protector on the connections at the end. So they'll be shipped from either a, a yard in the UK or we have facilities around the world where we have equipment based. It'll go offshore. If it's been deployed from a jackup, it'll run onto the, uh, the pipe rack, pipe deck of the jackup, brought on and then run as large diameter pipe would be made up and the connections will either be screwed together or there's some that use a, a sort of hydraulic press to push the box slightly apart and engage in a series of concentric rings. Or if it's a dog connection, you'll wind those dogs in and locked up. For every connection, you'll do a, a pressure test. You'll externally pressure test the connection, make sure there's no leaks there. And then you'll uh, run it, and once it's all fully engaged, you will do a, an entire pressure test on the, the system as a whole to make sure, again, there's no leaks. So, you know, that, that's what you do when you're running it to, to ensure that you've got that situation. Yeah, and, and your people do all of this? Like, so it's your technicians on the other side of the world on some crew boat somewhere doing the pressure testing? Oh, absolutely. So, it, oh, I mean, we are... I know it's a, a rather cliched uh, statement. It's a sort of one-stop shop. You know, we, we, we'll do the design, we'll oversee the fabrication, the QHSE, all of the SIT, the inspections, 
and then we'll organise the logistics and it's our guys that will go offshore and check everything out, run it and be responsible for that operation of running the riser, getting all in situation. And then we'll hand over to the drilling team who, you know, the client's drilling team or the guys on the jack-up who will then take responsibility of drilling the wells through it. But we will typically keep people offshore to act as, uh, you know, sort of a inspections, maintenance, to be on call if there's any issues. Yeah. And so, Stuart, I kind of I want to back up a little bit. How did you, because this is fascinating stuff. I, I, I love that subsea world. I I'm, People make fun of me, but I, I'm very serious, even though I say this in a joking manner. A subsea engineer, in my opinion, makes us aerospace engineer look like a bunch of Lego builders because aerospace guys deal with a lot of theory. The subsea engineers have to deliver something that works that you have to build a pack up and move across the world and has to hit some project delivery date and some budget date. And, you know, it just it can't fail. So I want to go down there a little bit more, but I want to back up a little bit. How did you get into this crazy world? Of oil and gas? I've never worked in any industry. My Personally, I've never worked in any industry other than oil and gas. I graduated with my engineering degree some 30 years ago from uh, the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. was looking for a job and unsurprisingly, being in Aberdeen, the, the, the main employment opportunities were all in the oil and gas industry. So I, I jumped in and I've never looked back since. I've thoroughly enjoyed all 30 years. Yeah, it's a crazy because I graduated university in the late 80s. And when I go back and think about how that's almost 30 years ago, it's like, oh, my God, it doesn't seem like that was 30 years ago. So Aberdeen 30 years ago in the early 90s was completely different than, well, poor, poor Aberdeen's really suffered from this low crude price environment. But the Aberdeen of the 80s was radically different than the Aberdeen of the 2000s. To a degree, I think there's always been the presence of the, the, sort of the major and the sort of uh, smaller independent oil companies in Aberdeen. But because you've got that sort of a concentration of a client base, it's always spawned, you know, sort of fairly innovative companies and companies that are looking to develop. Now, both there and in other hubs, such as where we are down here in Norwich, which uh, supported the southern basin of the North Sea, you know, there's, there's always been that drive for companies to provide something a bit different, something either novel equipment, different ways of running it, something that adds to either the safety of what you're doing, the speed of what you're doing. And I think most people involved in the oil and gas industry would always push that any innovation we do always will have sort of safety and safety of the people operating it as part of the core of whatever you're operating. You know, there's no point in offering a new system if it's unsafe. So you're always pushing that to do something better, faster, and more, you know, more importantly, safer. Yeah, it's Stuart, but it's really interesting because I see this too. There's always this dichotomy. So we're, especially in the upstream part of industry, we're always looking ahead at new processes and new materials and new techniques. We look at other industries like uh, aerospace and even medical. But at the same time, like you said, because safety is so important to us, a lot of times we don't want to adopt anything new because there's a risk. Even if what I'm doing now is old fashioned and done on paper, if nothing leaks and nothing blows up and nobody dies, Will I take the risk of switching to something different? So that must be a constant tension for Aquaterra to be able to look at, say, new materials like composites or new metallurgy, but at the same time have to convince your clients, which are the operators, to try something new. How do you how do y'all work through that? You're absolutely right. And in, in the oil and gas industry, there's a certain degree of inertia to overcome to bring in new technologies. It, to a degree, it's very it, it's understandable. You know, people have processes, equipment that have been there in place for years and in some cases for decades. Interconnectability, particularly in the offshore and in the subsea world and the drilling world, you want to ensure that 
the piece of equipment you've bought from company A will connect to the piece of equipment from company B. So there's standards there that you can't step beyond. But you see a sort of a general sort of organic evolution of different techniques, different materials being stretched out. You know, just because you have done something the same way for 10 years doesn't mean it's the best way. But you have to usually find a willing sponsor in a company willing uh, who is happy to take on that you know, challenge of bringing something new into the field, integrating something slightly different with the jack-up or drilling a well in a slightly different way. For instance, as we were talking about risers, using a, using a high-pressure riser to drill a subsea well from a jack-up rather than automatically assuming you have to do it from a semi-submersible. So that's a, you're, you're using the same equipment, you're using known, known processes, known suppliers, you're just bringing them together in a slightly different picture. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I'm old enough to remember when the Iron Roughneck first came out in the 70s, but it w- wasn't adopted for 20 years. It wasn't until the 90s started using it. And now you go on a rig and they're everywhere, right? Because they're safer and faster and they're better, better for the drill stem, better for the people. But it took us that long to to adopt something that was that much of a benefit to us. So, well, speaking of stuff like this, so the North Sea is not in its heyday anymore. Are you seeing the conditions in the North Sea? Because I know y'all do a lot of work there. Are you seeing conditions in the North Sea I don't want to say force, but are you seeing conditions in North Sea cause operators to actually look at new process and new technologies like they didn't before? Yeah, I think there's there's sort of a, a number of different drivers in the North Sea. You have, uh, so I think, legislative approaches. So, for instance, Norway, the Norwegian territorial waters under Norwegian legislation, they're very, very safety conscious, very safety driven. So things like the, the Iron Roughneck, you know, sort of, banning the use of divers or I think stopping the use of divers unless you have any other option. You know, so there's there's certain government approaches come in that changes the industry's view of technology. It, you, the North Sea is, as you say, a very, it's a mature market now. So there are new discoveries taking place in some of the, the rougher areas, you know, sort of west of Shetland, the northern, northern North Sea, where environmental conditions are, significant so you you tend to have to adopt different processes and procedures to get the things to work and you know the north sea is an area where innovation has typically taken place you know the use of tension leg platforms were put in the north sea very early on almost as a testing ground for use in other places subsea developments were used there probably earlier than anywhere else pre-drilling and tying back to fixed infrastructure again it's always been a test bed for that Probably because of the environmental conditions that, you know, compared to, for instance, the, the, you know, the Gulf of Mexico, your standard sea state is, you know, maybe a, a sort of four or five meter sea is, is a regular occurrence. You know, the, the hundred year wave and some parts of the, the central North Sea is, uh, you know, anything from 16 to 20 meters. You know, these are conditions that you, you have to understand and have to develop technology to withstand and cope with. It is amazing to watch those platforms in the North Sea withstand not just the waves, but the constant battering of tons and tons of water. It's I love engineers. You know, give them a problem and give them a budget and they'll fix it. But the other thing about the North Sea, in case our audience doesn't know, is it's not just the wave action. It's cold. It's like deadly cold. And so it's some of the hardest environmental conditions to work in, and especially the Norwegians. Man, when they first got started working in the North Sea, they really put their engineering hats on, and they came up with a bunch of, like you said, a bunch of unique solutions to problems that nobody had to deal with. I remember the first large subsea installation I ever saw. I think it was Shell. And they had just miles and miles of uh, underwater 
pipelines and plets and manifolds and trees and it was all tied together and this was before the sensorization so a lot of that stuff was done manually they would send an rov down with hands and open and close valves and it was it was just amazing that anybody was able to do that much less do it in an environment like the north sea but this is what y'all do for a living i mean this is this is your bread and butter right not just the north sea but anywhere in the world Yes, uh, we we as a company operate around the globe. You know, we're currently operating or operating. We're currently working on projects offshore West Africa, Australasia. We've been providing some analysis support for South America, Central America. We, you know, sort of year and a half ago, we designed a platform that was installed offshore Trinidad. So, you know, we we are very much a sort of a global engineering company. Yeah, let's talk about that. So when I think of y'all, I think risers, but I'd forgot y'all actually do other stuff besides risers, don't y'all? Yes. I mean, one of the, the main sort of uh, business areas that the company's in is is the sort of design and supply of minimum facilities platforms. So we are currently designing two platforms that will be installed this year and early into early next year offshore Nigeria. So they're in sort of 27 and 55 meters water depth. We're starting some design work for another another company offshore West Africa looking at a platform there in about 60 metres water depth. And these these platforms are sort of modular, so they're, they're designed to be installed using the jack-up. So the jack-up will turn up to be able to drill the wells, but will also basically pick the platform parts off the back of a, a supply boat or a barge and will install them and then drill the wells through the platform. That is so cool. So the jackup shows up to drill, and then it builds the platform, and it drills, and then it leaves a, a functioning well with a production platform in place. Yes, yes, and the, so we've done uh, five of these so far, and you know the, the, these range from fairly shallow water depths, you know, sort of twenty-seven, twenty-eight meters, to I think the deepest we've done so far is about sixty-five meters water depth. But you know, the one in uh, Trinidad is a very nice example. That's a relatively simplistic platform. It was a single deck. It accommodates three wells for a, a gas field. And we designed that. That went from sort of project kickoff to installation in, in a year. So fairly fast turnaround. That was fabricated actually in the, in the US, in Louisiana. And, uh, you know, all designed around what capabilities were available to the client to perform the drilling and installation. Man, there's so many pieces here I could talk about. So first thing, I can't believe Louisiana won the bid the bid for that. Good good for the US, right? Number two, this is so much quicker. This has to save the operators, not not just cost savings, but time to first oil. This has to be like a, a huge savings as far as efficiencies to be able to pull that jack up away and the platform sitting there ready to go into production. Yes, and I'd say one of the differentiators for our platform, you know. You would certainly hope that there's a cost saving. Uh, you know, you're putting less steel in the platform in itself. So just in terms of fabrication, there should be a reduction in cost there. But it's it's the ability to use potentially smaller fabrication yards. You know, if you're doing a, a platform in 60 meters water depth, you know, as I mentioned, we're designing one of those at the moment. You don't, if you were doing a traditional jacket, you would need a, a yard that had could, could uh, fabricate a jacket that was maybe 80 meters long to go from the sort of seabed up to where the top sides would go on. You know, we're looking at modules that are a maximum of uh, 20 metres high. So you can fabricate in a much smaller space or split it out amongst smaller spaces. You're going to install with the, the jack-up. And you, in terms of efficiencies, you've got an efficiency in fabrication, you've got efficiency in procurement, 
But for a lot of these operators we're, we're speaking to, for them to bring a, a heavy lift crane to their field will usually involve mobilising it from the other side of the world. And the mobilisation and demobilisation costs for a heavy lift crane to install a jacket like that could be in excess of $10 million, anything up to $20 million. So that's an immediate cost saving straight away. And it's also another interface that you're cutting out. You don't need to rely on that. You can just use the jack up that you're going to charter anyway to drill the wells. Yeah. And the other thing you talked about, you said a year. So a lot of people know a lot of these, even on the shelf, even in shallow water, a lot of these projects that once they, they drill the well and they go in production and then they build the production platform, it's usually several years before that production platform is built from the time they drilled the well. So even the time segments is enormous. I know when you said a year, if our audience doesn't know, it doesn't sound like a, a big time improvement, but it's an enormous time improvement. Yeah. And, you know, the, the year is good. The, the year is a good uh, sort of schedule to aim for with a, you know, a fair wind behind you. If, you. if it's a bigger platform or you've got some sort of complex topside equipment, the driver there, the long lead time can purely be the, the, the equipment that you're going to put in your topsides. But again, we've got uh, the approach we're developing at the moment for some of the clients in West Africa. The topside is actually in two parts. So we install effectively what would be the jacket of the platform, the subsea structures, the conductors, and a, a sort of deck. You can then start your drilling, and you can drill wells and suspend them while you're waiting for the rest of the top sides to be finalized. Then you insta- install that afterwards. So again, just aiming for that reduction to first oil. Man, I'm so glad we had this conversation because I didn't even know y'all were doing this. This is really cool. And I love that modular approach. We need more of that in this industry. We need more standardization. It just drives down costs for everybody. And it also makes things safer. If if the rigs are designed the same with the same thrusters and the same anchors, or if the platform is designed the same with the same pumps in the same place, it makes it easier for the techs to fix and repair stuff. And so it's less people actually doing the work, which then drives down lost time incidents. So you know, industry as a whole, we need more of the standardization. And Stuart, it sounds like Aquaterra is is sort of like, I don't, I don't want to say leading the charge, but I've never heard of anybody building modular platforms before. Y'all have to be one of the first, if not the first. I think we're, 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 we're certainly, I think, I'd like to think we're one of the, the people that has developed this as a solution and bringing it to market. You know, there are a number of uh, people offering lightweight platforms out there. You know, we I think what we bring to the market is that, as you says, it's a sort of joined up thinking. We, you know, we're we're one group of people in this building. You know, we the same people that will be uh, doing the engineering will be sitting next to the people who will be responsible for the installation. Respond next to the people responsible for procurement. We have our own people that are out there in the yards overseeing the fabrication, pulling it all together. So, you know, it's it's that one core. I think, and we've got a lot of people in the company that have got experience of being on jack up, so they know what the drillers are going to go through who have to actually drill through these platforms. So we've always got that consideration there. And I think touching on a point that you, you just made, that, that standardization point, I you know, I completely agree. You know, when we are looking at, you know, one of the companies we've been dealing with, you know, we're working on these two platforms for them. Hopefully there'll be a number of platforms following on. And one of our key drivers from day one was that commonality across the platform so that when the when the, the techs go on board to do any work that they know that the emergency shutdown button is there on the left, that the wellhead control panel is four steps to the right, that all of the equipment, even if the platforms are subtly different in their water depths and configurations, but everything is in the same area, performing the same function across all the platforms. 
so that there's a comfort there and that they're not having to scrabble around worrying about where things are because instinctively they'll know where it is because there's that theme running through all of the platforms. That is such a beautiful thing. I mean, it's, it's great shout out to y'all for actually doing that because you're, you're making sure people go home safe, right? If something bad happens, that tech instinctively knows where everything is, doesn't have to relearn everything. Man, that is awesome. And you're driving savings for your clients. I mean, it's kind of a win-win both ways. We definitely need to get y'all back on. We're going to get y'all back on the HSNE show to explore that angle even more. Uh, unfortunately, we're getting to the point where we need to start winding this show down. This is the point where we do our product reviews. So if you have a tech product you'd like me to review and people please quit sending me mud pumps. <laughs> I'm not reviewing big mud pumps. It's little gadgety things, right? Stuff that we use day to day, something that's really cool that may help you in your job or whatever. If you have a product you want me to review, let me know. I'd be happy to review it. Just full disclosure, a lot of times companies send us stuff for free. We always try to tell you the truth. If it needs some improvement, we'll tell you that. If we think it's awesome, it's awesome. There also may be an Amazon link. If you click on that link, we get a few cents from that. It doesn't affect how much you have to pay for anything, but just a way to help support the show. But today we're going to talk about the Razer Keo ring light. If you ever see me shoot any uh, web videos from my computer, it's actually the light that we use. The thing I love about it is it has a light around the camera. It's a, a, a webcam. And so it allows you to have that natural look without you having to figure out how to open windows or shut windows and everything else and it makes it really easy to shoot really good video from your your computer so we use this thing all the time it's about a hundred bucks there's an amazon link in the show notes go check it out and then street team at the end of the show you hear julie talking about how to join the street team we're still looking for volunteers it's a way for uh, you to become part of our extended family have a good time get some cool swag and then if you like the show our sponsor, Flutura.com, is heavy, heavy, heavy into AI, to artificial intelligence, all I guess. They're doing some amazing stuff with some major operators, and they're also nice enough to give away this really cool Port Authority Cyber Backpack. So, Stuart, you and your team can go register for this. It's really simple. You go to the show notes, click on the link, or you can just type in getflutura.com forward slash podcast. Go check it out. It's a really cool tech podcast. We give away one a week. Big shout out to Flutur for doing that. And then while you're online, go ahead and uh, go to our website, which is oilandgastechpodcast.com. Give us your email address. We promise never to spam you. Stuart, this has been awesome. We're going to get you back on uh, at least one other show, if not several other shows. you got such a great story here. If people wanted to learn more about Aquaterra, where should they go? The best place to go is go to our website, which is uh, www.aquaterraenergy.com. Yeah, and we'll put a link in the show notes, people, so you have to be writing things down. And then, Stuart, if people want to learn more about you, I'm guessing LinkedIn? LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, so I'm happy to uh, receive any connection requests. Yep. We'll put a link in the show notes for Rich, uh, for Richard, for Stuart's LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Man, this has been awesome. I know it's late in the evening. I really appreciate your time today. I'm more than happy to, and I'm sure myself or one of my other colleagues will be would be more than happy to, again, take part in a future uh, podcast and touch on some of the other stuff that we do here. Yeah, no, this is awesome. All right, so it's about time to get out of here. We're making sure that you don't get left behind one episode at a time. And here's Julie with Events on Deck. Hey, it's Julie here, and I have a few OGGN announcements before we're heading into the Events on Deck. Street team, we are still taking volunteers for our street team. We're only asking for an hour of your time per week in exchange for perks such as free entry to our happy hours, shirts, networking with other young professionals in our group, the group is within Facebook, but you do not have to have a Facebook to join. Just send me an email. The link will be in the show notes and I can get you started. Our happy hours. We are actually moving to quarterly happy hours rather than monthly. So our next Houston happy hour 
as well as Midland will be in August or September. Be on the lookout for that date. You'll get an invite if you're on the list. If not, you can sign up on the list below. And then we are launching another happy hour in Denver in August. So if you're interested in that one, the link is in the show notes as well to be notified. We don't have a date or details for that yet, but they're coming up. Okay, now on to the events on deck. We have Golf for Good on June 11th, 2019 in Houston, Texas. All proceeds go to help redeemed ministries with our long-term recovery program and safe house to help victims of human trafficking become survivors. So mark your calendars and be ready to golf for good with Redeemed and our organizers, Global SEM Energy and Red M. For more information on how to sponsor or register, just click the link in the show notes. Data-Driven Drilling and Production Conference is June 11th through 12th in Houston, Texas. This is where Silicon Valley meets oil and gas. Register at the link in our show notes below. The Energy and Data Conference is June 17th through 19th in Austin, Texas. This forward-looking conference will include the latest in digital transformation trends as they relate to the energy sectors with topics such as machine learning and data management storage, oil and gas development and drilling production, and more. Link down below. Energy Exposition is June 26th through 27th in Gillette, Wyoming. The Energy Exposition is for those who would like to know more about procedures, technology, safety, environmental practices, and equipment used in the oil and gas industry. And again, the link is in our show notes. Argentina Oil and Gas and Energy Summit 2019 is on July 10th and 11th in Buenos Aires. This summit's actually the first and only official event for the Argentinian oil and gas and energy industries. It will present a unique platform for networking that will bring together existing and future operators in the oil and gas industry in Argentina and Latin America. Next up is the 2019 IPANM annual meeting that Mark, Jake, and Paige will actually be speaking at. This will be July 24th through 26th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year's theme is addressing operator needs in 2019. And next up is Desk and Derek Fort Worth second annual shoot for the future clay shoot. This clay shoot will be on July 26th in Decatur, Texas. And then last but not least, Summer Nape. This is going to be August 21st and 22nd where the deals happen. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.